Before we get started, I'd like to thank Wisconsin Cheese for supporting this season. Hello, I'm Alex Redgrave, Executive Editor at Sever. Welcome to our new podcast, Place Settings. This season, we're traveling across the U.S. to meet the chefs, farmers, makers, and creatives who are transforming the food space through their unique connection to a place, from the high desert of New Mexico to the buzzy streets of Brooklyn. Each week, our editors will chat with a food innovator whose personal journey is as compelling as what they're putting on the plate. Let's dig in. Since opening her bakery, Banbei, last year, Doris Hocane has sparked a fast-growing following. As New York's first Vietnamese-American bakery, the space is a small but mighty destination that celebrates Vietnamese food and community. Through Hocane's highly creative lens, which she developed working in fashion and textile design, desserts and breakfast dishes look like mini works of art. Her butter cookie tin quickly racked up a 10,000-person waiting list, and customers line up around the block to try her glowing green pandan coconut waffles and agar jellies in the shape of cherry blossoms. As photogenic as they are, Hokane's creations hold deeper meaning. They speak directly to her experience as a child of refugees from Vietnam. They nod to her longtime love of punk music and a DIY approach. They also open a dialogue about representation, healing, and creative expression. Beyond the food world, Hokane explores these same themes in her archive project, 1721 Women. She started the collection as a teenager to spotlight Asian and Pacific Islander women throughout history who she wasn't learning about otherwise. Now, she shares her findings on Instagram and is writing a book to be published in 2024. Through her food, her art, and the space they share at Bembe, Hokane is building a place for nourishment, inspiration, and community. I spoke with her on a recent busy morning at the Bambay Takeout Window in Brooklyn to hear more about her project. My name is Doris Hokane, and I live in Brooklyn, New York. I'm a historian and the baker and founder of Bang Bay Bakery and Carroll Gardens. I start my mornings off around 6 a.m., and I walk a few blocks over. When I worked in kitchens, we were always in the dungeon or never had any windows, so this big window was really attractive to me. Um, we have too many trees upon recommendation of my mom, who's very superstitious, um, and just um, a lot of greenery. Um, it reminds me of home. It also reminds me of Vietnam, which is very lush. 
year round. This space had been empty for about six months and a friend told me about it and I walked in and I was like, okay, this is where the bakery should be. It felt right. Growing up as a child of refugees, you've described before that you were sort of existing in this in-between space of Vietnamese-American and those two realities. Where was food in that experience for you? I was born and raised in Dallas. Um, I lived there for the first 20 years of my life as a Vietnamese Texan, which I enjoyed at times and hated most times. My parents were boat people, refugees from the Vietnam War, and we were sponsored by the Catholic Church. And so we lived in Section 9 housing. It was a pretty rough neighborhood. Our groceries were actually stolen in front of our faces. It's such a potent memory for me. I think I wanted to deeply rebel from the food and the culture that I grew up in. I wanted to be as American as possible. So I wanted to go to McDonald's. I wanted, you know, to prove my Americanness. I was never ashamed. I ate the food at home, but I just tried, you know, hamburger helper or mac and cheese. I thought those things were so luxurious and wonderful. Um, while my grandmother was making this beautiful Vietnamese feast of herbs from the garden and, you know, pho and banh mi and like other dishes. And I just rejected it at home. When you were 11, your parents opened a Vietnamese restaurant. Did that change your self-perception and sort of how you're interacting with the community, I would imagine it's flipping the dynamic a bit of what you're describing. Definitely, because, I mean, I think a lot of immigrant kids can relate in food rejection, you know, going to school and parents packing lunches that might not smell familiar or look familiar texture-wise, appearance-wise, um, smell-wise. So for people to come into our space seeking out our food and that people are actually enjoying it and um, experiencing our culture through nourishment. I felt really proud. I have three older siblings and definitely not of age to be waiting tables, but they waited <laughs> tables. I sat in the back with my baby sister, who's nine years younger, and I would just play with her. One of the women that was a prep cook would sneak spring rolls to us and Vietnamese yogurt and scraps of food. And I would peek out through this beaded curtain at the customers to see, oh, they're enjoying it. And mom, they really liked it. Just seeing the hard work and just how proud she was. I slowly began to accept myself more as a Vietnamese person and not just thinking about our traumas and how we got there, it was time for me to focus on our joy and um, accomplishments. And it wasn't until I was 15 that I had this moment, this epiphany that, you know, I needed to hold on to this. I stopped thinking in Vietnamese. I got scared that I was losing a lot of my culture. So the minute I started thinking in English was the moment I decided to go back to my ancestors' food. I immediately had my mom put dried squid into the toaster oven and we cut it up and we dipped it into hot sauce. And I think that was the first thing I wanted to eat to kind of indulge in our very umami-esque food ways. As a teen, you discovered the local punk scene and you were introduced to the work of amazing women like Yoko Ono, 
Kiri Kushiyama, the civil rights activist, all the riot girl bands. How does punk rock influence how you got here? Growing up, there was always such a linear path of the way you should present yourself, that you should go to the Buddhist temple every Sunday, that you should study science or engineering, go to medical school, become a lawyer. And I think the punk rock scene just kind of opened up um, my brain um, through the music, through the culture, through the people that um, there was another way to exist. I was the only Vietnamese person in the punk scene within that Dallas community. So it was like finding my footing again, trying to find home within that community. But when I did, I thrived. I went to a place called Moon Tunes and there was like random noise bands playing. And there was a, a woman, I was like, oh my God, there's another Asian woman. And she was a little bit older than me. I kind of stared at her for a long time, trying to get her attention. It was just so incredible to see someone that looked like me, but didn't care what people thought and like had hairy armpits and really, really short hair and just seemed like such an extreme caricature of what I wanted to be. I was like, I want to be that brave. I want to be able to express myself in that way. So we started talking and she started telling me about Yuri Kochiyama and that I should really look into her because that she would change my life. So the day after that, I had my mom go with me to the public library and I went through like two and a half hours worth of those microfiche canisters. And I finally found her and it was in connection to Malcolm X, um, who at the time was such a controversial figure in my school. We couldn't really learn about him, but he's such a brilliant thinker. And so I looked at the picture and it was um, the moment of his assassination. And it was Yuri Kochiyama who was cradling him in her arms. So it made such a huge impact to me that there was this solidarity between the Black movement and the Asian movement that I didn't know about. And so I started archiving from that point on. So as you walk out of the kitchen, there's like a pretty short hallway, but in the very back um, is a dedicated space for a Rizzo printer which my husband uses um, to print all of our posters and menus. It's basically a Xerox machine, but there's like an added dimension to it. It's like very saturated. 1721 Women. It's an Instagram archive I started in 2016 in response to Donald Trump being elected. Um, I felt like it was the time to recenter narratives and look into obscured history, um, things that have been buried. And it was time for representation and for people to understand different communities as whole. I felt like I needed an immediate way to share these images. When I was 15, I started collecting things um, by Asian American women or about Asian American women. So I pulled out those archives and I started posting it to Instagram and it just really resonated. Let me see if I can find this page. It's a picture of a, a woman driving a New York City taxi cab named Lily Chung Lai Chow. It says she's a Chinese immigrant and a mother of seven. And as a mother of three, it just kind of struck me seeing like this really tough Chinese American woman driving a cab. And I think this book was made in the 80s. 
And New York City was not a friendly place to anyone at that time. And imagining being an immigrant woman working that job seemed kind of incredible and ahead of her time. When the Sever editors are putting together an epic cheese board, a creamy cacio pepe, or a melty chile relleno, we look to one place for our star ingredient, Wisconsin, the state of cheese, where rich international influences meet a unique American terroir. That one-of-a-kind cheesemaking culture has flourished since immigrants from Switzerland, the Netherlands, Italy, and beyond first settled in the region's lush green hills almost 200 years ago. The soil and water, nurtured by glacial sediment, provided the perfect conditions for recreating their favorite cheeses. Today, those centuries-old skills, combined with the freshest milk available, has won Wisconsin more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country. From grass-fed alpine-style cheeses to cave-aged raw milk cheddars, Wisconsin cheesemakers blend tradition with innovation to create an impressive artisanal assortment that will wow at your next meal. Look for the Proudly Wisconsin Cheese Badge at your local grocery store and discover your next favorite cheese today. When you first came to New York, you studied fashion and textile design, dabbled in art a bit. That's always been part of your practice. Do you find those creative outlets kind of come together now? I started out as a biology major in college, and I switched over to fashion design. I watched a Hussein Chilean show where he turned a coffee table into a dress. At that moment, I was like, I'm changing my major. It just really affected me. I had been working in fashion for almost 13 years. I got pregnant with my first child and I felt like, wow, like I'm nourishing this human who's totally reliant on me. And I started thinking about nourishment as a whole and how food fit into that and fashion did not. So I had always loved baking. I always did bake sales for like anti-racist action, feminist majority alliance in high school. So I was like, let's go back into food. And so the way that I've pulled in fashion design, textile design and art into this bakery and my archive work is everything's very visual. When I'm making food, I always think about the palette first, and then I base it off of that dream I have of what it should look like. The blue sky I saw the other day, or even like a kid's shoe that was like this shade of pink that I loved with a hint of orange in it. And I'll think about all of our foods that can make those colors, um, like saffron or turmeric or pandan Terra root, you know, I start out with colors and then I go from there. All of your sweets have such a visual impact. Even the way you describe them is so poetic, but you're also bringing awareness to traditional Vietnamese desserts for those less familiar with them. What's that creative balance like between representation, but then also this very personal creative outlet for you? Something I've been thinking about because when you're recognized as the first Vietnamese American bakery in New York City, there's a lot of expectation that comes with it. And then from there, a lot of gatekeeping. So even within the Vietnamese community, they're like, um, I don't remember grandma making that. And, you know, it's not exactly what grandma made, but it's me as a Vietnamese 
being creating something from my own vision and from my own personal experiences. The most important thing for me is for people to know that there is not one way to be Vietnamese. There's not one way to be Vietnamese American because there isn't a lot of Vietnamese food here in New York City. I, I understand the need for authenticity, but I think that if you're a Vietnamese person and you're making food, it's Vietnamese food and it's 100% authentic. If you don't put anything personal into your work, I don't know that there's a purpose for it to be out in the world. You're very intentional in writing in Vietnamese. Uh, on your menu, of course, but also on social media. You translate some phrases and give context to ingredients and dishes, but other times you leave non-Vietnamese readers to figure it out on their own. Why is that important for you? I've been writing for a very long time. As a kid, I had 12 journals, one for each month. It's just so crucial um, to hear from a Southeast Asian voice, but also I feel like we should hear from more South Asian voices and West Asian voices. With writing, it's just another outlet for me to be heard and for a community to be seen and realized as whole. I feel like, especially in America, people's stories that are being told are always so focused on the Western world, through the Western lens, through the white lens. So, you know, when I'm reading a book by a white author, she doesn't have to explain to me everything surrounding a situation. I just have to catch on or figure it out. But if you're an Asian writer, you often have to go into like centuries of history to get to this point of why your family's gathered around in this way. So for me, I think it's important for people to do some of the work and to see it through my lens um, and kind of turn the tables a little bit. So we're out of the cassava cake and flan and almost out of the pandan coconut milk with jellies. We still have six waffles left. People get really surprised when like they bite into the waffle. Yeah. It has a little bit of a chew, but it's not exactly a mochi waffle. I think it originated in Saigon, but after the wars. My mom never ate it back in Vietnam. It was something that was created by street vendors, I think, and then it was brought here. It took like, I think 10 tries to get it to this point. Bambay is actually an extension of your archive project, 1721 Women, which spotlights remarkable Asian Pacific Islander women. How do archiving and food intersect for you, knowing that they share this space and they've been so closely developed through your work? For Vietnamese Americans that came over as boat people or as children of boat people or grandchildren of boat people, we left with nothing. You couldn't take anything with you. So a lot was lost. A lot of um, things that people take for granted, like things that their grandmother has passed down to them. So what we have and what you can't take away from us is our food and our recipes. The food is our archive, since so much of our history has been lost and destroyed through war and colonization. So for me, it's a direct connection. Even as I work on 1721 women, there's not a lot of information on Vietnamese women specifically because our records have been destroyed. I'm building a new archive through food and making a record of it. Like I keep every single Rizzo printed menu for me, my mom or my grandmother, you know, they are the living archive. 
It's a lot of oral traditions passed on. You've mentioned before that by making family recipes, you're communing with your ancestors. And one example of many is your herbal che, um, traditional Vietnamese dessert. And that's inspired by your grandfather, who was a physician and herbalist in Vietnam. There's this aspect of healing in all of your work and food and in art. How has it grown or evolved? You know, generational trauma is very, very real and very intense. And it's something I still to this day have to work through. So for me, healing in the simplest ways, the simplest forms of just food, having, you know, some sort of comfort is really important. Having three children myself, it's really important to just heal on like a micro level so that maybe eventually for them, it'll be like a macro thing and that maybe they don't have to pass it on. I feel like as Vietnamese people, we never had a chance to be ourselves and never explore ourselves because honestly, I don't even know what our foods are. Everything has come from somewhere else. So I don't know what is actually native to us and what is our ancestral food. What do you like to make for yourself and for your kids that does feel healing and, and nourishing? I make dessert soups and they're the herbal jays that you had mentioned. I use a lot of mung bean and a lot of seaweed. Those contrasting flavors are really nice to me because the seaweed feels like the water in the ocean and the mung beans have this deep earthiness to them that reminds me of being landlocked as a Texan. <laughs> that juxtaposition of land and ocean for me, like land is my Americanness because I grew up in Texas and like water is my Vietnamese side because we were surrounded by water. So it's healing for me to think about that but for my children, just eating these ingredients that have been eaten for centuries and by our ancestors and for them to know about it and to be proud of it is healing. I mean, just that pride and happiness. It doesn't have to be like physically healing. When your mom comes to visit or you go home, what's the first meal that's made? It's usually a family meal and we'll sit around. It's rice with a soup. And then something that's savory. I'm vegetarian, so she'll make it out of tofu or wheat gluten. But it's a lot of little dishes, a lot of fresh herbs from my dad's garden, a lot of clanking chopsticks because we're constantly trying to get the last piece. But yeah, it's always such simple food that is barely cooked. So you can still taste the vibrancy of like the energy of it. Bande is New York's first Vietnamese-American bakery. And it's been like this runaway success that you're selling out within 30 minutes. Your cookie tins at one point had a waiting list of 12,000 people. What has this experience taught you? And what are you setting your sights on next? What it's taught me is that I can't do everything myself. A lot of people don't believe that it's a two-person team. It's just me and my husband right now doing all production, but we're trying to feed a lot of people. To accommodate and nourish the community, I have to bring on the community to help me. It's really important that my food, although it's very personal, is based on a lot of our history as well. And eventually incorporating my archive into this, I would love to have that community space where it's a non-circulating library. People can come in just to learn about our history, or they can come in to do research for a book or a film, because I would love more representation in those areas as well. I feel like it's so critical to see us as living and thriving and happy. Bang Bay means friends and 
who knows what the next evolution is. Sorry. Okay. We're open again tomorrow morning. Okay. We're just about to get here. Bye. Usually, I do my work in here. Um, we get beautiful light from this huge window, and my mom sewed up these curtains for me. You can see patches of different fabrics here. They're all shades of blue. She told me that as she was sewing them up, the blues reminded her of the South China Sea when they were out on the boat at night, and it would turn from hopeful shades of light blue to these deep, deep navy blues that you couldn't even register as a blue. It was almost pitch black and she couldn't even see her hands in front of her face. My father was the one that commandeered the small rickety fishing boat and he had no map and no compass and he just kind of looked at the stars for navigation and got them to the coast of Hong Kong. So for her, I think it was a way to heal and also at the same time commune with her ancestors through these curtains and through a bakery that is representation of our Vietnamese American foodways. That's our show for today. If you're in New York and want to know what's on the menu at Bambay, follow the bakery's Instagram account. You can also support Bambay through Hokane's fundraiser, and links for both are in our episode description. I'm your host, producer, and the creator of this podcast, Alex Regrave, and here are all the incredible people who bring place settings to life. The show is also produced by Ali Alkiza, executive creative producer, Hallie Petro, head of production, Pat Sullivan, associate producer, Kimu Elolia, production assistant, Alex Thiel. The theme music and original composition is by Julian Fader and Justin Morris. Music edit, sound design, and mix by Rob Ballingal, with support from Kelly Usman and Owen Shearer. Music supervision by Justin Morris. Our tape sync and field recordist in Brooklyn is James Napoli. At Sever, our chief content officer is Kate Berry. The podcast visual design is by Britt Ashcraft. Play Settings is recorded and produced with Sonic Union in New York City. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Join us next week when we land in Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs>